0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe,
1: For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centres or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: We're pleased to bring you a special summer offer from our sister magazines. You can try three issues of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed for just £5. That's a saving of up to 72% off the shop price. Plus, you'll receive free UK delivery on each issue. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit our official online store, buysubscriptions.com podcast 2021. If you're based in the US, you also won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast 2021. Please be aware that both these offers end on the 31st of August 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. From satirical cartoons of rotund imperialists to souvenir prints of Britain's heaviest man, our 18th-century ancestors were fixated with images of fatness. But why? For today's podcast, I was joined by Dr. Freya Gowley, who's been researching how images of fat bodies were used to discuss the anxieties of the Georgian Age. If you want to see some of the amazing images that we discuss in the following conversation, then we've posted some on our Instagram. Just follow us on History Extra to see those. So, thanks very much for joining me, Freya. Um, Today, we're going to be talking all about your research into images and representations of fatness in the Georgian era. So why are you so interested in this? What can it tell us about society at the time? Thanks,
3: Ellie. Um, And thanks for having me as well. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess I should start off by maybe explaining the use of terminology that we're using which is uh, using terms fatness and fat. And we are using those kind of as part of a reclamation of language um, that has occurred as the result of the body positivity movement, which has sort of reclaimed um, terms like fat and fatness. So we're sort of adhering to, to those standards. So part of the reason that I'm interested in looking at images of fatness is um, in part, just because for in contemporary society, we're so unused to seeing images of fat individuals mm in our daily lives. They don't necessarily appear um, on the covers of magazines. Um, Sometimes they do very rarely. Like there was a a recent Cosmopolitan uh, magazine cover in 2018, which featured um, a plus size model. And that was quite controversial. So actually looking back to a period in which images of fatness were more routine, is quite fascinating in terms of thinking about a long Continuum of images of individuals with different kinds of body sizes, and thinking about how those long legacies of ideas around fatness and body types um, first began, or um, and the negative associations that we often have with them, and
0: how those sort of um, emerged, how and when those things emerged. So we're going to be delving into all of these in a bit more depth in a uh, in a little while. But to start us off, can you give us an idea of some of the topics that? fatness was used to discuss, as it were, in in popular culture.
3: Fatness becomes um, so prevalent in the 18th century in part because of something called the the consumer revolution, uh, which is a a historian's term for um, the new emergence of goods of all kinds that really happens in the 18th century. So you have this new proliferation of consumable wares, um, which are available to purchase by an ever broader range of consumers. And so there's a lot of anxiety around that and particularly over the nature of needs versus desires and how much consumption you should be doing and how much was too much and so it made sense then that fatness would become kind of bound up with these moral um, conceptualizations of what we're consuming and what we're not consuming Um, and so fatness becomes in this context in which luxury and overindulgence is really moralized and so fatness becomes a byword for immorality of various kinds so it Crops up in discussions of transgressive behaviours of all kinds. So perhaps um, transgressions of expectations around gender um, and public women's public appearances um, becomes a real issue. So if a woman was seen to be too public, she might be um, represented as fat. Um, so uh, one good example of this is um, images of Albinia Hobart. So Albinia was um, Countess of Buckinghamshire, so an aristocratic woman, um, but she had a really interesting public role as a political hostess. So she um, canvassed on behalf of William Pitt uh, the Younger in the Westminster election of 1784. So she was quite um, publicly visible and also she engaged in um, gambling and um, private but somewhat public the amateur theatricals. So she had a quite a public reputation. Um, and so um, she was often the subject of the satirist's pen. And part of the language around her presentation was around her body size. We don't know how big she was in reality, but certainly the visual culture that surrounds her suggests that she was um, larger than average, and therefore it becomes a way of lampooning her and drawing attention to those behaviors, those gendered behaviors, that um, she shouldn't have been engaging in as a woman. So it's kind of a, a weapon for misogyny, really? Yes it's it's certainly um often directed towards women who um go beyond the bounds of what was deemed acceptable feminine behavior at the time and um I think we might come back to talk about Daniel Lambert uh, later in the podcast but um certainly Lambert isn't treated with the same disdain that um women like Albinia Hobart or Emma Hamilton for example are treated with
0: this idea of using images of fatness as a way to critique people's morals. Is that something new in the Georgian age or is it kind of a more intense version of of something that's gone before? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, historically, there have long
3: been discomfort around weight being people people being perceived as being overweight. But I think it's something that intensifies in this period specifically because of the rise of um, visual satire and its specific languages. So the Georgian era, we often think about, as I mentioned, as one of consumerism and and new availability of different kinds of goods. But one of those kinds of goods was print culture of of all kinds, so newspapers, ephemera, books, but also um, print visual images, so um, prints of various kinds. So that might be um, a representation after a famous portrait that's then available for sale to a broader range of consumers. But the kind of typical 18th century visual print that we think about is the satirical print. So the print, which either gently or not so gently ridicules uh, this kind of social mores of the day. Um, So that might feature anything from um, commentary on um, contemporary politics um, to gender roles, And their transgression. So, as I mentioned, so a good example of an event which generated a lot of satirical images is the 1784 Westminster election, um, which uh, pitted um, Fox, uh, Charles uh, James Fox, and William Pitt the Younger against each other. And Fox was one of the two sitting members for the constituency of Westminster, which had. A large deal of um, political prestige at the time, so it was a very important seat. Um, and so both sides of the campaign um, engaged in this quite bitter strategy of campaigning, um, libelling and slandering their opposition, and also engaging in uh, engaging their famous friends in canvassing on their behalf. So one of the individuals that Fox gets to canvass is um, Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire. Um, And so she is reported as um, touring the streets and campaigning on his behalf and one um probably apocryphal story about her kissing butchers emerges. Um, and so that features <laughs> repeatedly in um prints. Some prints were made of, of this event that and were published every single day, um, which um show Georgina um canvassing and engaging in these very public forms of behaviors, and she's sort of cast as being Fox's lover or a bad mother. And and it's all because of this engagement with um well, with this very public um, political world in which women were not supposed to participate. And so so you have this really intense um, culture of visual images, of satirical prints, um, and because satirical prints are so much about exaggeration as part of their humorous mode, it makes sense that sort of fatness becomes bound up uh, with these narratives. If you have a remotely strong profile in visual satire, you're going to have um, your chin or your nose emphasised. And if you're even slightly over sort of average weight, um, you're going to be depicted as as much larger than you are. So it just, it's sort of, it makes sense that fatness becomes a focus of these kinds of images. So whereas there had long been various kinds of discomfort with fat bodies, I think it becomes a particular visual spectacle at this time, partly because of the kinds of models and modes that satire uses.
0: And how pervasive was this print culture? Uh, Cartoons by the likes of, say, Gil Ray. Um, Who would be seeing these images and where would they be seeing them? Um, Did they reflect popular culture or was it more of a reflection of an aristocratic elite?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So there is some debate (laughs) among historians, as there always is, um, about who was the viewership for satirical print. Certainly we know um, that uh, certain forms of um, satirical print were much cheaper than other forms of um, high print culture. So if you you were purchasing an image done, a very fine mezzotint done after an image by Joshua Reynolds of the Lady's Waldegrave or something, that's going to cost you much, much more than a satirical print by um, Gilray. Um, nevertheless, they're still quite um, elite objects. They're consumed by people like Horace Walpole, who keeps a Um, an album of satirical prints um, and paste them all in. Um, But there's also a sense in which these were publicly viewable by a broader range of society through the print shop window. And so one of the ways we know about this is through um, satirical images of people looking in print shop windows. So they're, they're sort of um, a kind of witty play on the idea of, of the characters, the cast of characters who might be in these prints are then looking at themselves depicted in the print shop window. <laughs> um, but there is a sense then for us as historians that this might have been a reality in which um, people of, of all kinds walking past would have seen and experienced these kinds of, of print um, on an everyday
0: basis. So there's a potential that they were quite democratic as a medium. So as well as the, the idea that um, fatness was used to portray moral laxity, as it were. You also look at how it was used to comment on imperialism, which is obviously a huge theme of this um, this era. How so? Yeah, so
3: um, fatness often crops up um, in visual images around uh, the theme of imperialism. And this is for a couple of reasons. Um, inevitably, Britain's colonial expansion at this time brought British individuals into contact with other peoples with which um, Britain, British individuals had previously been unfamiliar. So um, the peoples who were enslaved and um, moved um, between um, Africa to um, the Caribbean, for example, and um, that just the peoples who were subjugated in the lands that um, were taken over as part of British imperialism. There's a lot of anxiety around British identity in this context, particularly around who was mixing with who and how these new landscapes might physically change the body as well. So um, fatness becomes this sort of shared language for um, reflecting on some of those anxieties. So whether through unflattering and often highly racist depictions of enslaved individuals who are shown as being um, unattractive and fat... Or on the other hand, you might get depictions of um, settler colonists whose bodies are seen as becoming kind of lazy and softened as a result of the climate. Um, so there's, because this is a time in which um, it's still quite a uh, strong belief in the, the idea that your climate would affect you physically in quite specific ways. So um, fatness, as it often is, is bound up with these anxieties over this new of these new sorts of encounters these new landscapes these new um, geographies and is used to express um, these anxieties but this also plays into the broader narratives that we've been talking about around trade and consumerism as well so um, individuals who are seen as Um, importing luxury goods um, from abroad are often depicted as sort of um, luxuriating and fat and and consuming you know Chinese punch bowls and um, wearing banyans imported from India so um, it's quite a consistent uh, reference point throughout these images still to come on the History Extra podcast If we look at something like images of Albania participating in the Westminster election, we get a sense of just how many prints were available and how much people were consuming images like this as well. So it tells us not only about what Georgians were worried about, but the ways in which they were expressing those things as well.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match
2: At sax.com.
0: So, so far, all, all the touch points we've kind of had are fatness seen very much in a negative sense. And I do want to talk about how it was seen in a positive sense in a moment. But just before we do, can you give us a sense of what the beauty ideals were at the time, maybe um, for men and women? So certain
3: historians have argued that this, particularly the end of the 18th century, so the time in which these satirical prints are becoming um, or are reaching their height of popularity, that there's also a a shift uh, in beauty standards towards a um, thin body, specifically a a consumptive body. So women who look like they might have um, tuberculosis specifically, so who would be very pale and pale but with rosy cheeks um, who would be very thin um, and would be quite like sort of diaphanously dressed as was the style at the time, right? Those sort of Grecian um, flowing uh, dresses. So there's a sort of a a distinct shift towards this kind of feminine ideal where you're sort of shy and, and refined and thin and it's all part of this, it's all bound up in this quite specific way. So you see this reflected in satires but also in fashion plates where uh, the, the kind of models are, are increasingly thin um, or very thin and also in uh, medical tracks like something like uh, William Ward's cursory remarks on corpulence which comes out in the early uh, 19th century which... Um, sort of really rails against um weight gain and also will give recommendations um for how to lose weight and what kinds of things you should be eating and stuff so it's kind of early diet manual (laughs) that we would sort of recognize today um so there's a, a real distinctive shift around around this time to sort of valuing um women's bodies that are, th- are thinner.
0: Do we have a sense of whether there's any kind of underlying historical reasons why that might have been the case? Or do, do you get the sense that, you know, trends come and go in terms of diet and beauty?
3: I think at the end of the, the 18th century, in the early 19th century, specifically, it's partly about fashionability, what is um, trendy in terms of what women are wearing. Um, but it's also about these sort of long-standing negative associations around fatness. But there's certainly a shift from uh, what we might identify as sort of renaissance plumpness um, to uh, something more decidedly um, thin and which is something we recognize as then having endured quite strongly into the Victorian period and into the, the present day as well. So it's certainly long-standing um, but there's there's shifts and fluctuations throughout the history of, of ideal body types um, but certainly it seems like this Consumptive chic moment, as Carolyn Day has called it, is a bit of a turning point in in this preferential shift towards thinness as as the ideal for women. Mm. And what about men? Did they have the same kind of pressure? I mean. <laughs> As is also sort of true today, uh, there seems to be less discourse around Mm. whether men should be fat or not. I mean, obviously, everything in moderation. And so when you get to someone who is the size of Daniel Lambert, there's a lot more kind of moralizing around that. But certainly, Charles James Fox is fat. Um, You know, he has typical middle-aged spread, like a larger stomach. But that doesn't tend to be commented on so much, really, in the um, in the visual images. It's other things that he gets satirised for, like his eyebrows and his um, five o'clock shadow features very prominently. Um, whereas actually his weight is not so much a, a kind of point of of satirization. Uh, and I think that is partly gendered as well. Mm-hmm. Because um, one of the concerns around women's bodies Um, and being overweight was around pregnancy and fertility. So there was a perception, strong perception at the time, again, that is still very standard today, that um, women who uh, are overweight in some way, which I'm quote unquote overweight, um, are less able to have children or are less fertile.
0: So I promised that we were going to talk about some more positive associations of fatness in the area. So let's, talk about Daniel Lambert, who's come up a couple of times. What can you tell us about his life and then his larger-than-life persona as well? Yeah, so um,
3: Lambert is very much a kind of 18th century celebrity. He was known as Britain's largest man, and he's in partly in part so famous because of his voluminous print culture that, ex- that explodes around him. Um, and it helps us to sort of understand... The nature of celebrity at the time and how it was constructed through this consumption of visual images, Um, but also about sort of changing attitudes towards um, fatness and how, and in many ways, that Lambert is something of an exception. So he was a a Bridewell prison keeper and animal breeder, but he becomes famous, obviously, for the size of his body. Um, He's born in Leicester in 1770, and by the time he's 23, he apparently weighed um, 32 stone, and by 180. Five, he was reputed to have weighed fifty stones, so he's um, fairly um, substantial um, as an individual. The prison eventually closes down in 1805, and he's granted an annuity um, to live on um, of fifty pounds, um, and he supplements this with sales of hunting dogs and fighting cocks, and crucially by exhibiting himself in London. So this is quite interesting because of he has some real agency in this decision. This isn't something that is done to him. He's not subjected to this display. Um, He sort of decides that he is a curiosity worthy of seeing and he takes himself to London. And here he finds great fame he's a popular attraction for the fashionable london elite um, and he uh, invites them to view him in his um residence um in leicester square i think at first and then there's also one at piccadilly he charges a shilling for entry as well it's quite quite lucrative i believe it was often very busy um and so what we get lots of accounts of people visiting him and and conversing with him and having a, actually quite a rather um engaging and lovely time um so yes yeah, so one commentator called um said that the apartments of lambert were more like that of a place of fashionable resort than of an exhibition so he's when he Puts himself on display in London. It's actually quite um, a refined display. I think he's. It's very sociable. There's a kind of level of sociable exchange. He has conversate, enlightened kind of conversation with those who visit him, um, and he's sort of almost quite dandyish. I think in in the way he sort of presents himself um, while there. Um, and. As part of this reputation and fame that develops around him, we then get this rather substantial print culture. So there are prints of Lambert, um, which range from those that are quite fine in nature to very rough woodcuts, which suggests quite a broad range of society being interested in him. Um, But they're not super satirical. They often resemble quite closely the couple of painted portraits we have of Lambert, which survive. and they don't tend to really exaggerate the size of his body um, more than what we see in the portrait itself as well. So he, he is, he's certainly a kind of curiosity and is subject to some of those, um, those treatments. But he's certainly not a freak show in the Victorian mm. sense of that terminology. So um, he actually has some real agency and celebrity and popularity. And I think that's sort of interesting um, to think about
0: yeah, and something I was really interested to to learn about was the way in which Daniel Lambert became essentially a, a bastion of Englishness, didn't he? How was that connection formed?
3: Yeah, that's a, an interesting um, point. So often in the um, the more satirical images that do emerge of Lambert, he's cast in the role of John Bull, so the personification of Englishness from this time. Who himself is repeatedly quite rotund and and um, sort of he represents the sort of healthy, labouring body, slightly plump but still very strong kind of British moral character. Um, and so Lambert sort of often assumes that role, or he might be depicted with John Bull. Um, and that is specifically at, around this time um, In that becomes such a thing in direct relation to ideas of Frenchness. So in one image, um Lambert fulfills the role of Bull in opposition to Napoleon, who's depicted as much smaller and thinner and scornier. But that was part of an established visual language that really emerged as a result of the French Revolution and British anxieties around um, how the French had behaved. Um, you know, the there was a there's an internal perception in France at the time that obviously this was a period of great freedom, of great kind of freedom from existing tyrannies, but the British were quite critical of. of of this and and portrayed the French as as extremely thin and malnourished and as a kind of comment on um, the failure of the French Revolution really. Um, So when Lambert appears as John Bull or when John Bull appears again as a kind of rotund healthy plump nourished British man this is in opposition to a, a less healthy French man who's malnourished and then it's just therefore a comment on kind of national
0: character as well so it kind of works on lots of different levels but one one thing I did want to uh, want to ask you um is just what you've been most surprised by to uncover in your research in terms of attitudes to fatness that we might find quite alien today yeah
3: I think but certainly this sort of valorization around Daniel Lambert i think is the most surprising thing i think if you compare it to something like those awful my 600 pound life tv shows or something like that in which extremes of of fatness are treated with disdain and as a as a spectacle but not in a in a way that grants the individual any agency it's sort of refreshing to see Lambert have like a real sense of self to to take on uh, roles as a businessman he's actually often discussed as a sort of paragon of sporting expertise he's well known for um horse riding and and there's a one story in this biography which must be um completely made up but is quite wonderful uh, which talks about him wrestling a bear and then winning <laughs> and winning um so there's all this sort of mythologization around lambert which is very positive in nature it's quite distinctive from the, the models through which we sort of understand and experience fatness today. I mean, uh, obviously that was one of the narratives that came through as part of the coronavirus pandemic was quite um, sort of, um, there was a lot of sort of fat phobia that came around during that. And that was when I was really sort of working on this material. And I was thinking how distinct the two approaches were, um, thinking about how Lambert was celebrated and how if there was an equivalent to him today, I could not imagine the same being true.
0: Why do you think that this is all important to us um, as historians to know about? How does it offer new insights on the Georgians yeah, and Georgian society? Yeah, so I think society? that this topic is important both for understanding
3: the Georgians and um, long, longer legacies of, of fatness and how it's been treated throughout history and how it's a cultural construction really. But for me, fatness is such a useful window onto a range of interconnected issues. So um, it tells us not only about anxieties around things like gender, sexuality, um, imperialism, all the things that Georgians were worried about and um, due to big shifts in, you know, commercialism and women's um, role within society and things like that, but it also tells us about some of the modes of culture and how you know, how images worked at this time. So we understand more about, you know, proliferation of images. We, if we look at something like images of Albania participating in the Westminster election, we get a sense of just how many prints were available and how much people were consuming images like this as well. So it tells us not only about what Georgians were worried about, but the ways in which they were expressing those things as well. Um, and then at the same time, I think it helps us to think about the idea of fatness as being a cultural construct so not just something which is sort of medicalized and um discussed of in terms of something like obesity but um but actually you know that these are long-standing legacies with highly kind of cultural traditions and so it's important to understand um current attitudes throughout through this longer continuum of attitudes
0: Thank you so much. I think that would be a great place to end. I mean, it all feels so. You scroll through through Instagram, and you, the idea of the proliferation of images, it all feels very yeah. Familiar, no, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I think. Um, and it's interesting that part of the
3: way in which the body positivity movement has really come uh, into sort of popularity is partly through social media and through other forms of media yeah. that are not like traditional magazines, images of, of bodies and things like that. So I think yeah. there's lots of of interesting continuance to think about how fatness is so associated with visual culture specifically.
0: That was Dr Freya Gowley. Freya has written an article on this subject for the September issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale on the 5th of August and also includes features on the Salem witch trials, the workhouse, the far-right hijacking of the classics and much more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when David Goldblatt will be answering your questions on the history of the Olympics.